So we have, we have a simple thing to look at this morning. Um, very simple, should be pretty quick. Uh, we've got one verse from 1 Peter where we are going to look at the, uh, the reality of God's Word that never perishes. God's Word will remain. That what He has revealed, what He has inspired, what He has given us is eternal. His promise is dependable because He is dependable. And so it should be pretty quick and easy. That's basically it. So we're good to go. Y'all are set, right? So one time, Charles Spurgeon, this guy told a story, and we'll tell it to you here, that a gardener, it's not going to happen today, a gardener, a gardener of someone's estate, he goes out, he had been especially careful working in this garden, cultivating this, this beautiful particular rose. He had devoted weeks and years to this, cultivating, taking care of it, pruning it, giving it fertilizer that, that this, this rose, this rose would produce, and it was his favorite rose bush. bush. He found it particularly beautiful to look at and to, um, to behold. And then one day he shows up one morning and it's gone. The rose is gone and he thought that some, uh, some bad kid ran across and snubbed it out, cut it off, and so he was rather, he was rather cross. He was upset. And so as he walks away thinking that someone had stolen from his garden his best flower, he went and he was complaining very bitterly of his loss. And someone said, the master has been down in the garden this morning. He'd been admiring your rose bush, and he saw it, and he enjoyed it so much that he took the rose. And then immediately, his attitude was, was changed, that he he was thankful. The gardener was delighted that he was able to grow a flower that attracted his master's notice. And so in a similar fashion, as we set our hearts in our lives, may it be our, our statement, may it be our prayer that we would say to our master, my Lord, if it pleases you to take it, it pleases me to lose it. Why should I complain because you have taken from me what is really your own? Ultimately, all our lives are a stewardship. Our days are a gift to us. It's not how we think. It's not how I think. I think of my life. And I imagine we all, you would echo the same, that we think of our days. We think of our life. We think of our things, our possession, our income, our ability, our desires. We think that way. That is common, that is ingrained in our nature, yet everything has been gifted to us by God. Our days, our family, our future, our abilities, our skills, our jobs, everything. God has given it to us as a stewardship. So we should rejoice. Rejoice in the good things God has given us. Rejoice in the glorious gifts that He has given us. And one that I know we take for granted, I know I take for granted, is the book that I'm holding and that we have many copies of at home, and that we have copious resources of the Scripture, the sacred Word of God that He has given us, this gift that He has entrusted, that He has given us, to where He fully reveals everything we need for life and godliness, that He shows us clearly who He is in such rich ways such incredible stories and teachings that are simple and complex. 
that are incredibly simple that we can read and understand and that are not floating off in some ivory tower, but are also so complex that you will never find the bottom of it. You will spend your whole life, you can spend every moment, every ounce of energy you have and never find the bottom of God's Word. This incredible gift we have. Do we see it that way? Does our life look different because of it? And would we say, as Spurgeon in this story, would we say to our Master when He calls us, when He calls and takes something of our life, that it would be our heart to share, to give, to trust Him? So we're going to look at 1 Peter, the verse we were looking at, uh, the verse right before the ones we're memorizing. Verse 23 is what we're looking at this morning. We're going to concentrate on one verse and hopefully keep it simple and get to the point that the Word of God is eternal and valuable. It is valuable in our lives. It is worth our attention. It is worth our time because God is. Not because this is special paper and ink and it's just spectacularly bound and it's, it's covered in a special animal. But because the God of the universe has given it to us. And He speaks and reveals who He is to us through it. And so the insane value of it comes because of God. Because of the Lord God that we see. So, Peter... Let's do a little introduction about who Peter is, who this letter is, uh, so that we can understand, because we're just hitting one verse, and that one verse is in the middle of many verses. And so, I want you to understand that what we're talking about is coming from the greater context of this letter. And so Peter, Simon Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, who God, Jesus, calls from fishing to follow him, he goes, and we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see the ministry of this man as he observes and sees Jesus and does some, some rather foolish things uh, through, through those years, and that in the resurrection of Christ, crucifixion of Christ, that is, we see Simon Peter who's restored and sent to the people of Israel. So he is called by Christ to go to the Jews and to serve in Jerusalem to the people, the called out people of God, and to share who Christ the Messiah is to them. And so this is the man who wrote this letter. The early church is relatively unanimous on Peter as the author of this letter. But as most things today, many people argue about it. And lots of people today have arguments and complaints about how this couldn't be Peter. But those closest historically to the composition of this letter say it's Peter. It is Simon Peter. There is, no, there is no contradiction in that record of the first few centuries. And so he more than likely, he wrote this while imprisoned, waiting for his inverted crucifixion, is what tradition tells us. And so Peter, who is writing this letter from Rome about mid-60-ish, he is looking upon his death right before him, and he is writing this letter to a group of people in Asia Minor who are scattered abroad. It's not to a church specifically, and it's not to a group of people specifically, but it's to the church in this area. And so he is the disciple, the apostle to the Jews, yet it's really, really interesting. The language of this letter is not Jewish only. 
In that, the language used, the words used in this letter are inclusive, are, are general, entailing that he is not only writing to the Jewish people who might have been scattered, who are scattered around this area in Asia Minor, in current day kind of the area of Turkey, that he is writing to those Jewish believers, but also to Gentile believers. You see, Peter was a man who was changed by Christ. Changed by God's Word. If you remember in Acts 10, we have the story of God sending to him a vision as he calls him to go to a man named Cornelius and he gives him this vision where a sheet is, is dropped down with a bunch of different animals and he argues with God over, I, I will not touch unclean things. And in this, God communicates to him that there is no unclean person. That we are all unclean in our sin, but there is no one that God has made that He does not desire to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. Every person, no matter background, no matter um, race and heritage, no matter wealth and ability, God is created to know Him and Jesus has come to save them. And so Peter is utterly changed by the, what God has done and said, and we see it in this letter. We see it in verse 1 in the places where he is, is writing this general open letter to that is meant to be circulated around. This is a rural area. These are not Hellenistic city-states where Jewish people might have, have come, but more tribal in its, in its people who are there. And he's writing this letter that they would know and trust and be encouraged to remain faithful to Christ. Remember, he's in prison. He's looking at the end. He's suffering. Just as the people he's writing to are suffering. And he's telling them, don't forsake Christ. Don't forsake the commitment you've made. Don't forsake the gospel that you've trusted in. Remain faithful to him as he is faithful and will be faithful to you. And so we see here the active nature of the gospel in Peter's life. So, let's read. Y'all ready? Should be on the screen. We're going to read, start in verse 20, and read through 25, the end of chapter 1, and then we will concentrate on verse 23. He has foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who, though, who through him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, in all its glory, like the flower of the grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So as I said, we will focus on 23, but the context is important here. As Peter has been encouraging his audience to trust in Christ, to remember and recall what Jesus has done for them. The costly sacrifice that Jesus paid that they would be redeemed, that they would be atoned for and saved by His grace. That they would have life and have it abundantly. That they would know that, be reminded of that, 
and be reminded of what God has brought them into. That He has brought them into a family that they are to love one another and cherish one another because of what Christ has done. That He has made believers, believers in God, being raised from the death, the spiritual death as Christ has been raised, that by their faith they hope in God. A living hope. An active hope in what Christ has done. Therefore, verse 22, love one another. That is the, you can't see it in English, but the Greek word, that is the central verb. The verbs in, in verse 23 are dependent on this one. And so this instruction, as he says, love one another sincerely, genuinely, from an earnest, a fervent heart. What he is centrally saying is that what God has done yields that we should love each other. Genuinely, earnestly. That the foundation of love for one another is not circumstantial things, it is not where we are, but it is what Christ and God has done for us. That He has brought about new life and rebirth. Therefore, verse 23, because of what He has done, love one another. Remain true to one another. Now, three things will structure kind of what we're looking at in this verse. First one, the glorious rebirth. The glorious reality of justification in Christ that we are born again by His grace. Number two, the Word that never fails. And number three, it's really long. I couldn't come up with a shorter one. The Savior's life enjoyed through the abiding influence of God's Word. That by His grace, we can enjoy the life of God, the life of Christ, as we initially trust in Him, but as we rest in His Word, as we go and hear from Him, as we hear from the Scripture, as we learn and grow by the Word of God, we enjoy His life. We are enriched and filled with the Spirit and His truth. All right, so number one, the glorious rebirth. God dramatically changes people. This, this term here in verse 23, you have been born again since you have been born again. This is one word, one very long word that this idea is all wrapped into. It appears earlier in chapter 1, but this one word is, a, is, is indicative of something that has occurred that still is effective now. It's something that has occurred that continues to affect, continues to change today. So what he's saying here is that to be born again, the, his audience, that they have been born again not by their work, it's a passive word too, it's something that has occurred to them, but they have been born again by the grace of Christ, by God's grace, in a day before, and that it has changed their present day now, and has no conclusion. It continues to affect, it continues to change tomorrow. And so the reality of being born again, of regeneration, is that this work of God, it is His work, it changes people, and that it changes them forever. Peter is a picture of that. Peter, that's why we looked at that just a minute ago, is that he embodies this reality. The stubborn man Peter was, as he cut a, a kid's ear off. As he's, he doesn't, Jesus tells him, this is what's happening. And he pulls out his little whatever it was and chops the kid's ear off as Jesus is being arrested. Like he was such an impulsive person. 
who, who just wouldn't listen right before him, right what God said right before him, and yet he is utterly changed. We see it in his life. That regeneration changed him. And it is an essential aspect of God's people. So, this critical reality, Peter expands in a few verses earlier in 3 and 4 of chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He, the mercy of God, God Himself has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It is God who has caused it. God is responsible for salvation. If you have been justified by His grace, born again by His grace, God is the one responsible for it. Why that's important is that it is not manufactured. It is not something we do. Scripture is clear that salvation is of the Lord, that God is the active party. And that's a really, really good thing we'll look at in just a second. But he says, Peter highlights this, that it is according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven. This, the nature of rebirth is that God does it. He does it by His mercy. It is something He does out of the abundance of His love and mercy for sinful, evil people who apart from His mercy want nothing to do with Him, who are satisfied in selfishness and in circumstances. And yet God opens our eyes by His grace. That as Jesus has come to give His life to a step in our place, He opens our eyes by His Spirit through His Word that we see, we see His work of grace and that He, by, through His Word, by His Spirit, brings about life. God gives life. So please be certain it is God's work of grace that we are saved, that we are forgiven, that we are brought to life. And so baptism, as we saw this, is a picture of this. It's not an active work of grace, but is a picture of this reality. Romans 6 tells us that as Jesus was buried, physically buried, gave His life in reality and was raised, resurrected, with sin destroyed, that baptism is a physical picture of what spiritually has occurred. That Jesus, following with Him in what He has actually done, that He then actually does in the lives of people, forgiving sin, killing the old way, the sinful, separate, separate from God way of life, that by His grace we are brought back to life. That baptism is that physical picture of what Jesus actually has done for those who have been born again by His grace. And born again to a living hope. That living hope is a qualitative Thing. It, is, it is speaking to the quality of the hope. That is not hope alone. It is not just hope to be hoped in, but it is a hope that is alive and vibrant. It is a hope that proceeds from the living Savior. A hope that depends upon someone, not something. That so much in our world, if you scroll through TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or you're, you're going through YouTube as you talk about, as not you, but hopefully not you, um, but as you hear different voices and people who'll be talking about manifesting things and the universe will give me stuff and, and this, is what I, this is what I want, I'm just, I'm hoping this will happen and it will happen. That is hope in nothing. The hope that God gives us is a hope in 
an actual God who lives and exists and who is there in a person who is real. And so Jesus, He offers living hope through what He has done that He has been resurrected from the dead. Therefore, gives us an inheritance that will not perish. So Peter's idea in verse 23 is attached to this. This happens first in verses 3 and 4. And so he's talking about being born again. This is the explanation here that, that Jesus has come to give life and that those who trust in Him have been born again and utterly changed by His grace. And that as God, the author of regeneration and the author of hope, why He must be the author is because what Peter and the people he is writing to are looking right in the face. Struggle, suffering, and difficulty. If your faith and hope are in yourself, if your salvation you have made and you have merited, it is a weak foundation. It will crumble. Jesus, Matthew 7, talks about the man who builds his house on sand. That as the storm comes, as his life is built upon a foundation that is not stable, that as circumstances change and things happen, it will utterly fall in great destruction. But the man, the woman, the child, the person, the student who builds their life on the foundation of Christ, the rock of Christ Jesus, that that dependable concrete in the bedrock foundation that is attached to the earth that nothing can push away. No storm, no issue. There may be some shingles off. He may miss some, some plants and bricks and maybe a little corner wash. But ultimately, the house of your life will stand if it is built upon Christ. And so he says that he says here he's pointing us to this reality because it is essential for enduring life. It is essential for enduring suffering. We will not endure, we will not make it to the end if we have made up salvation ourselves. If our faith is in ourselves or something else or some circumstance or some idea and not the living God, it will ultimately disappoint. It will be clear in our lives. It will be evidenced in what we do and how we respond and how we react and whether we remain in the grace, the faith, if we continue to trust and walk after Him. Does it mean it will be flawless? It doesn't mean there will be no issue. But it means ultimately you will return and trust and walk and grow in the grace of Christ. So we see, we see later on, we see later on as it proves in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 that this you rejoice. Though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may abound, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Peter is making it clear to us. A faith that is built upon Christ will endure. And it is not accidental. I will never forget a sermon that I heard by John Piper years ago where he preaching from 2 Corinthians 4.17 is telling us that for this light momentary affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare that God is not absent in the suffering of His people. 
God is intimately present in what happens in our lives. And He uses every bit of it. He uses sufficiently every bit of difficulty, of suffering, of struggle in life for the good of His people and for His glory. I don't feel like that all the time. Like my experience doesn't always line up with that reality. But that is what Peter is saying. That is what he experienced. And that is what God's Word is telling us here. That even though this this moment, this moment of affliction is painful, God the Father is using it to prepare an eternal weight of glory that is beyond any comparison. That what we might lose now is not in comparison to what we will gain in Him. What we will have in Him. We are afflicted for a moment, but it is going somewhere. God does not waste it, but uses it. So this regeneration, this word He uses in verse 23, since you have been born again, encapsulates what God does in the life of the believer. As He brings us through His word to faith in Christ, and brings about new spiritual life. A life founded upon this work of God, of grace, that yields sufficiency for trials, difficulty for the rest of the days, that wells up into eternal life. Next, the word that never fails. Go to this next clause in verse 23. That since you've been born again, from what? Not perishable seed, but imperishable. That the seed of faith, the seed that leads to regeneration, will not perish. And so what is he talking about? What, what seed? What, what in the world? Why, why is he using this analogy, this agricultural analogy of a seed? And I think it's a really apt one. It's, it's fairly, especially then, but some of you have gardens and you're aware of what happens with seeds and how, how all that works. And so it's, it's a very visible thing for us to make sense of what, what he is saying, what spiritually occurs. And so he means two things. I think one, he's pointing to Christ, that Christ is the seed, that Christ in what he has done on the cross and his resurrection of what we have looked at that brings about new life, that that reality of what he has done it is the seed of faith and the seed of, um, of regeneration and life in the future. He will not end, but is eternal. But also, Scripture. If we point to the next few verses, it's all about God's Word. It's all about the eternality and dependability of God's Word, His Scripture. That what has been preached to Peter and what he is preaching to this audience the Scripture that we have, the sacred Word of God, will not perish. It has no conclusion. And so if we look at a few verses before in verse 18 and 19, it says, knowing that you have been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. First thing, know this. Know the reality that God has ransomed you if you are in Christ. And that that ransom paid 
that ransom from feudal ways, from former ways, is not from things that will burn up. Things that can tear. Things that can melt and go away. That can be lost. That can be stolen. That can be vaporized. That can, be, that can just disappear. But that you have been ransomed. You have been paid for. You have been atoned. You have been forgiven by the precious blood of Christ. That Christ, this, this just is so full of sacrificial system language that the perfect sacrifice given in place of the sinner, that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice given to pay and atone for sins. And so knowing this, that as He ransomed, as He paid, this imperishable seed is Christ that His sacrifice is once and done and will not end. And then that work to bring about regeneration and that enduring work that is revealed to us will not end because He will not. And so Isaiah 40, as it is cited in verses 24 and 25, that this is distinct of Scripture. It is distinct that Scripture will remain. That it will outlast each one of us. And so to give you to give you an analogy, a connection with, with plants. We, we moved into our house over here about a year and a half ago, and it was planted to sell. Like shrubbery and things, it was planted to sell. It wasn't, it wasn't much anything. Within a week, the paint on the grass went away, and it really wasn't painted, but it was like it was just disappeared. And so we, we quickly went to work trying to improve it, put some garden beds in, put a production side in, and and work on, on doing all these things to improve uh, the, the, the land and make it work for our needs and what we wanted and just brought in abatements for soil, moved things, dug up grass and moved plants and planted things and um, ground cover, just lots of hours, lots of work, lots of stuff. And if you've been to Lowe's recently, plants are not inexpensive. And all of this goes in the ground and then last summer happened. And last summer was rough. It was hot, dry, and so some of the plants, no matter what we did, did not make it. They didn't survive. Could have watered every day, like some of my my neighbors down down the way, who at four in the morning the sprinklers would pop on and um, water and things, keeping it alive. But it was hopeless. Some of it didn't make it. The sun dried it up. The plants didn't survive. And so the imagery, as each of you watched, it happened to your grass over the summer, each of you watched your plants and just what occur around you just reverberates this reality that what we see and have and hold is temporary. That what is before us has an end. We can over-insure and try to plan and try to cover things, but it is ultimately temporary. All of it. All of it's temporary. And so if our faith and trust is dependent on these things, those things will perish. So the imagery that Peter's giving us, the Lord has for us, is that His Word is not perishable. Like the seeds that we would throw in the ground and trying to grow things that ultimately will, under improper conditions, will dry up and disappear. The Word of God will not perish. And so lastly, the Savior's life enjoyed through the abiding influence of God's Word. 
we can trust God's good character. God has revealed to us that He is good and merciful and kind. And as things in life don't add up to that at times, we have a decision to make. Will we trust in what God has revealed and done, or will we trust in our vision and experience? Will we trust in what we see and what makes sense to us, or will instead we trust in the abiding eternal Word of God that speaks and reveals the character and the kindness and the goodness of God? Trusting that He is near and sees and knows. And so as God He has given us this utterly simple truth. He has created all life. Genesis 1 makes it utterly clear. He is the responsible party for all things. And so if we think we will take something that He has created and replace Him with it, it's going to be a sad disappointment. Life will dry up because these created things, Romans 1 makes it abundantly clear created things do not replace the creator he has made us for him and he has revealed himself to us therefore if we replace him and his word with other things it will sap the believer's life it will wear you out the wages of sin is death That putting the creation above the Creator as your central place of affection will ultimately end in death, but you will feel it coming. God's Word is given to us is this abiding gift of grace that we would know the life of God and that we would experience it now. The work of grace and justification, we feel it and know it now but it is an inheritance. It is something that will be fully known later. That is that song we sung, the last song we sung is talking about when we will see His face, that the fullness of His promise will be complete and will be realized when He returns. When we no longer see Him through a glass dimly, when we no longer see Him through the veil of this experience and the effect of sin in this world, the brokenness that we, we inhabit and that we are here in, that one day as we see Him clearly, His promises will be fulfilled and that He we will know without a doubt His faithfulness, goodness, and that reality we can experience now. But that's part of what we, what we have in this of whether we will listen to Him or go our own way. In other words, what you feed will grow. What you don't feed will not grow. And so if you don't spend time in the Word of God, your life will shrivel up. The grape will become a raisin. You will be dehydrated and anemic, and life will flee from you. Because God is the author and sustainer of life. Last few words in this verse. Through the living and abiding Word of God. The Word, the Lagos, the truth, the message, the Scripture that He has given us. What a gift God has given us here. That the Scriptures are so unique. There's a fancy term for how how we can all understand Scripture in that it, the perspicuity of Scripture, that you can open the Bible and you can understand it. That the simplest of things we can read and understand, 
and that there's still complexity in how it reveals the infinite God of the universe to us. There's nothing like the Bible. In 1945, there was a a discovery made in Egypt in an area called Nag Hammadi. And in this time, less than 100 years ago, they dug up all of these works that were believed lost, that were rumored uh, to exist. But all of these were called Gnostic literature. And so these were, these were writings from the first few centuries of the church that, uh, that were discovered and that were discovered intact largely. And you can go read these. Like they're all online. You can go check them out and look at these things, but these were extra-biblical New Testament works, some of them that were professed to be, they were claimed to be from the pen of an apostle. But if you read these, they are distinctly different from Scripture. There's a quality of Scripture that is not comparable. There's a quality of Scripture that no man can produce. That the Bible is unique in that it It exudes the divinity and the goodness of God that is not comparable to other things that exist. Other ancient works do not compare in the the remnants and the textual evidence we have for the Bible that God has preserved His Word in such a way that what we have before us is dependable. That if you have in your hands a literal translation that is that is up-to-date and dependent upon what has been discovered in the last century, you have a copy of Scripture that is almost 100% what was written by the apostles. There are so many manuscripts to compare and to look at and to, to study that what we have is such a dependable, such a dependable copy of God's Word that you can trust what's in your hand, and there is nothing else in this world like it. There is no other sacred literature that is comparable. There is no other document that exists that has the support that God's Word has because God is behind it and has inspired it and has given it to us. Do you believe that? And does your life look like you believe it? We're on the cusp of a new year. What I hope for us to walk away with from this time is that this year you would be devoted to God in His Word. That this year would look different for me and for us and for you. That your affection, your attention, you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that that would be evident in your devotion to hear Him in His Word. That more than just looking at Scripture as a means to an end of looking at the Bible in order to get done with it, to get on to something else, or approaching Scripture because a circumstance leads to an obligation, there is an urgent need before you, and so you go to the Bible to hear and to find some some string of hope and something to direct you. But instead, the rhythm of your life will be to love the Lord through His Word. To hear Him to listen to Him, to be devoted and put yourself before the Lord in His Word. Not an academic study. Not just a, I'm going to read it all, make it happen, and check the box. But a present sitting before the Lord asking Him, God, will You lead and guide and teach and have Your way in my life? 
Speak to me and help me to trust in you and what you reveal. Like that gardener that Spurgeon told us about. Who, his precious and prized rose was removed. And the master recognized and take, took it and he willingly said, Lord, it is yours. Rejoice that if he takes it away, that it was his to begin with. Devote yourself to the Lord this year, to His Word, to hear from Him, to know Him, to repent of sin, and to trust fully in Christ and in Him alone. Conduct yourself in the fear of God. You would believe His Word and that your view of the world would be conformed by His truth. That your understanding of reality would not be the understanding that you possess, but instead would be the word that you would lean upon God's word and truth to see the world rather than leaning upon your own understanding. Oh, there's so much more. Lastly, one thing. Seek the Lord. Love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pursue Him in His word. And lastly, Psalm 34, 8 probably heard this before taste and see that the lord is good blessed is the man who takes refuge in him everything's a stewardship everything we have god has given and entrusted to us use this year for his glory use it for your good and seek him with all your heart that he would be glorified individually before you through his word and that you would be used by Him for His glory and for your good throughout this year. Pray with me. Father, I thank You, Lord. God, I thank You that You are eternal and that You have shared with us Your truth and Your ways. God, I ask that, Lord, this meager attempt to, to exalt and to present your scripture, your truth, God, and that, Lord, may your word by your spirit work within each of our hearts. God, that this would not have just been a moment keeping us from lunch, but that, God, this would be, this would be a time, Lord, of just wrestling with you, that your word would be at work within our hearts, that, God, tomorrow we would approach the time that we have differently because of what you have said and because of who you are. That, God, we would live with intention. We would live in your shadow, in your gaze. Quorum Deo, Lord, for your glory. And so, Father, would you, Lord, lead and guide us now. God, help us, Lord, in dealing with our own hearts and dealing with your word that, Lord, we would truly and fully trust in you and see in our lives, Lord, the evidence of your work of grace. God, we would depend upon you and nothing else. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.